What's up, Bikerimer fans? I'm back with Matt Harvey from Enduro Bearings for round two, all about bottom brackets. If you haven't listened to our first chat, I recommend it as we go so deep down the rabbit hole of bearings that it'll give you a lot to think about as you're trying to optimize every part of your bike. In this episode, we focus on bottom brackets because Enduro recently released a report that shows the results of years of testing of many popular brands of BBs, but the numbers need some explaining. You'll find the charts and graphs, along with some really interesting data, in the show notes for this episode on bikerumor.com, as well as the link to the full test report, and I recommend checking it out. But here, Matt explains what those numbers really mean and gives us a deep dive on bottom bracket bearings, design, and other fun facts. Get ready to geek out once again. Please welcome Matt Harvey. Hey, welcome back to the Bike Rumor Show, Matt. Hey, Tyler, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, I'm glad you could make the time again. The last one was awesome. It's one of, still one of my favorite episodes. We just kind of geeked out super hard on bearings in general. This time we're going to focus specifically on bottom brackets because you sent out a really interesting chart about and some test results about a lot of different very popular bottom brackets and brands of bottom brackets. And at first glance, I look at the chart and it's like, holy shit, everything else sucks. <laughs> and your stuff somehow magically gets better over time with the, you know, the more it wears, the better it gets. And you and I were talking at Sea Otter about the numbers and, and how to interpret those. And it's, it's not as um, clear cut as it seems. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about those results in a bit. Because I think if this chart gets out there and somebody just glances at it, which is what a lot of us do now, right? We, we scroll, we see headlines, and we form our opinions. It, it could be a little bit misleading. Mm-hmm. So let's go back in time for a minute and talk about bottom brackets and bearings in general so that people kind of see why this test matters. Because also, like, that's one of those things, right? When we get a new bottom bracket on our bike and we spin that crank set and it spins around a lot or it doesn't, we're like, hey, you know. Or like, crap, what did I do wrong? <laughs> it's one of the easiest litmus tests for, you know, just good bearings, I think, or at least a visual test. But yeah, let's tell me about bottom brackets. All right. Well, I mean, first, just a quick history on the machine that we use for bottom bracket bearing testing. The machine we developed 20 years ago when bottom bracket standards were changing and bearing sizes were changing. And frankly, without going you know, into all the details of it, there was a lot of failures. So there was no protocol and there still is no protocol testing for bearings that are used in the bicycle industry the way they're used, which these are all small cartridge bearings, which in industry usually spin at 10,000 RPM with small loads. And in bottom brackets, and in the bicycle world, they, sh- they spin at very low RPM, let's say 150, 200 RPM with really high loads and high axial load. When you say industry, you mean like, like industrial applications, right? Not yeah. bike industry. Yeah, like uh, printing machines or motors or all these bearing, miniature bearings. And they are miniature sized bearings for the most part compared to industrial bearings, they're used in high-speed applications with not a lot of load. You know, and the load is usually driven by a motor, so it's pretty consistent load. A bottom bracket bearing, we're pedaling on it. Um, our motion is not perfect like a motor. It's a human motion, cyclic motion. And uh, the loads vary through the pedal stroke. 
high and lower. And uh, it's unusual, let's say, compared to almost every other application. So, you know, 20 years ago, people had changed to smaller bearings because there was the ISIS standard and the spindle got very large and the bottom bracket shell hadn't changed. So the bearings got really thin because you had to put thin bearings to, uh, there wasn't a lot of real estate to have a bigger bearing. And they were failing. Yeah, and we broke a lot of those. Yeah. <laughs> like we went, I, I had a little mountain bike team back in the day and we, we first got those from Truvative and nothing against Truvative because I think it was industry-wide, but man, we're not even, we weren't even like, we're like sport and expert level riders and we broke so many of those ISIS bottom brackets. Yeah, and it's basically that bearing, the de- the diameter of the balls in it and the size of the bearing it's like a uh, bearing for an instrument or something for running a needle on a on an RPM meter or something. It's it's not really made for that load. And so I made a I had a, worked with a friend of mine to build a machine to start testing bearings and just doing comparison testing side by side. So let's try this ISIS bearing in here, and let's try this bearing in here. And we also established a standard. Let's see what bearings actually work and seem to last in the field for a while and say, okay, well, this is a benchmark. Here's a, uh, you know, an SKF 6903. This thing seems to hang in there pretty good. Let's check this. And then let's check it against a uh, this new ISIS standard Truvative bearing and see what happens. And then we would get comparative data and start building a database on what works, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And we had to develop our own testing protocols, basically, because it doesn't exist in the bearing world. All the testing in the bearing world is for high speed. You know, you've heard of ABEC ratings. Those are all high speed ratings. So they don't really apply to the speed of a hub bearing, let's say. And uh, so this went on. And and uh, as the machine developed, we put a uh, wattage meter on it to check input wattage from the motor driving it. And we noticed with different bearings, there was a difference in the power that the motor was taking to uh, drive certain bearings. And so uh, we decided, hmm, let's try and put a power meter close to the bearing and see if we can actually get data, which, you know, usually it's really, let's back up for a second. It's really hard to get data out of a bearing wattage data because a bearing uses less than one watt, even a bad bearing. So what we're talking about, a bearing, let's say, uses or soaks is a quarter watt. That's the reality. Is that like, like when you say bearing, then are you talking about each individual ball or like a cartridge bearing with multiple balls? One cartridge bearing. So let's say in your bottom bracket, a brand new set of bearings uses about a half a watt. Uh, that's quarter watt each, half a watt. All the bearings on your bike total that you're rolling on, which there's usually four in the hub, two in the front hub, sorry, four in the rear hub, two in the front hub, a few in the pedals, bottom bracket, that adds up to about two watts. So <laughs> it's really hard to measure, <laughs> you know, if you add yeah, them all. It sort of makes you wonder why we fo- put so much focus on this, right? I've always been about real numbers instead of, making stuff up. I mean, it's hard to buy wattage if it doesn't exist. But, you know, let's look at it and let's actually see what's going on. So the reason we could get wattage numbers out of this test machine is we're amplifying the power and the uh, loads on the bearing to get full wattage numbers. 
under normal circumstances, it's really hard to pull that data. You know, years ago, I had worked with other people doing similar tests with aerodynamics and tire friction, all the things that add up to what uses, what are we fighting against when we're rolling down the road? And they agreed with me, uh, finding what the bearings were using was really difficult. It was way down in the numbers um, and it, they couldn't give me numbers themselves. And so I, you know, I've been thinking about this for, <laughs> I don't know, 20 years now. The only way to really get it is to amplify the test as we were doing. And so we put a power meter next to the bearing and we started to get results. And in the beginning, we were just keeping all that internally. And then a couple of years ago, we said, well, why not? Let's do a side by side and see what we actually get, which it takes. It took over a year of testing because you can't just test once, right? You got to test multiple times to establish the room has to be the right temperature. These are really, it's really hard to pull the data accurately. So under a controlled environment condition, as best we could do, we built these numbers. Point on that graph, the numbers look startling on the graph because, wow, what's going on here? These are dropping off and so forth. But if you really look at the numbers, there are not huge differences between really inexpensive bearings, especially when you first put them in your bike. There's not real big differences between inexpensive bearings and expensive bearings. They all use about the same. What's interesting to us is what happens after, let's say, a year or two years or five years of hard riding. It's really about longevity and how they're spinning over time. So let's, I, I want to talk about the numbers on the chart specifically and I'll just say there's 10 different bottom brackets tested here, and three of them are yours. Mm -hmm. I guess, I don't want to say not surprisingly, because I don't think you went into this with any bias, but your three performed the best. However, after we talk about this, I, I hope people stick around because I want to talk about like how, why those numbers matter, like what, what created those numbers? Because there's a lot of here also about the bearing size that's in each of these brands, mm -hmm. the, the material of the bearing, the material of the race, and all of those, I think, played a big role in this. But if we're looking at this chart, you know, you see a few brands that just fall off a cliff pretty quickly. But the funny thing is, like, when you look at what pretty quickly means, it's, you know, 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours of ride time, which is a lot, I think. You know, for a lot of people, that could be a year of riding, maybe. For some, maybe just a couple months. And then there's others that last, you know, 100 hours, 200 hours, and a lot of stuff all the way in between. So when you first look at this, the amplified watts is the thing that I really was kind of grilling you about. Because you have at the, the high end of the range for, you know, higher quality is six watts. And then at the bottom is, you know, 15 and plus in some brand, you know, at, at some point, every brand but yours drops off. But that's amp that's amplified, meaning that's a multiple of real watts by what? What was the multiple that you used? Well, it's it's 12, actually, you know, because you uh, you uh, it's a factor of 12 to 15. It's like I said, a really bad bearing is a good bearing. All of them brand new out of the box or a quarter watt. You know, then there's grease and seals, which add friction to the bearing. And that's mostly what you're seeing. The, the ball bearing machine, if you will, is super efficient. But over time, um, things happen inside the bearing as it's strained. And in our case, we are over straining these bearings for sure. And there's if they're small balls, they 
tend to wear out quicker is what we found. And they're spinning faster and using more friction. So yeah, we're amplifying the test to get full wattage results. So when I look at these, when I look at these numbers, I, there's like a, roughly a six and a half on the good end mm-hmm. down to like the, the lowest angle I see is, let's just say 14 for easy math. You know, what we're really talking about is not the difference between six and a half watts and 14 and a half watts. It's really like 0.5 to 1.2. Yes. Watts. So like maybe like a 0.7 watt difference per bearing. Correct. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. A lot of these bearings would last a couple of years in your bottom bracket, no problem, because number one, you're not overstraining them. If we had to run them at regular rates, we'd be te- it'd take us five years to test. We can't wait that long. So we amplify and, and push things a bit here. So you're applying more force to these than what a typical rider would, in addition to amplifying the watts to be able to just read the signal. Exactly. And also, when a ball bearing is spinning in your bottom bracket, only a third of the bearing is supporting the weight at any given time. On this machine, it's under constant load. So that's multiplying the test again by three times because the ball is loaded 360 degrees. When a radial bearing is in your bottom bracket, only the balls at the bottom of the stroke are carrying the load. They're kind of floating over the top and then coming into contact and and supporting the rider at the bottom. So you need to do both types of testing. Number one, you need we, we do field testing as well. The problem with field testing is we can't really, we know a rider, okay, this guy does 8,000 miles a year, but the riding, the quality of his riding might've been gravel, you know, road. Did he climb up a lot of hills? Like, was it time trial? So there's differences in the riding. It's hard to like gauge and compare the value of doing this over 20 years is we have found that basically our testing on the machine mirrors what we find in the field because it takes a long time to do field testing. (laughs) It takes years. And then it's not totally scientific, if you will, because it's not side by side. There's a lot more variables. Yeah. So then just so I'm understanding correctly, if, if you have three times the, I guess, load from it being loaded all the way around 360 degrees and then you have your what's the multiple of the load versus a normal rider on here well three times because we're loading it 360 okay. degrees around there so like when you said 50 but the 60 force hours, of the load is about the same as what a, a normal rider would put on it oh no oh sorry yeah so this would be the equivalent of a 450 pound rider 400 pound rider uh putting out 600 watts constantly <laughs> you know, never. So what is, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm just going to guess and say that's like a four to five X of what a normal rider would do. Yeah. You know, this person doesn't exist. I mean, conceptually, maybe a, a <laughs> linebacker in the NFL who can, who can right. pedal like Matthew Vanderpool, but yeah, it doesn't, and, and never stop pedaling. So let's just make it easy math. then. so let's say it's a four X and a three X. So you have a 12 X Yeah. on this. So when you say, when this chart shows 60 hours, it might really be 12, like what, like 720 hours? Yeah, yeah. Of normal riding. Yes, exactly. Which is a lot. That's years of riding. Okay. And, you know, that's, yes. 
<laughs> you you hit it the nail <laughs> on the head because otherwise again we'd be you know the test machine would be wearing out because we'd just be running it uh you know i'd be an old man before uh, we we got results so <laughs> just a reminder so people should see this chart you know, with this, with all of this kind of like all these caveats and additional information. And if you check the show notes for this post on Bike Rumors, you'll see the chart. And I'm going to throw a lot of the data in there too. And the reason why I really wanted to have this conversation was because like, like I said, like I looked at it and I'm like, man, there's just like, these are some good brands. And I'll let people look at the chart to see the brands. We're not throwing anybody under the bus here. I'm like, there's just no way these brands are that bad. Like they fail that quickly. And it's so that it's good to know that like they don't and the actual margin of difference is, is pretty small. So if you have like another popular brand of bottom bracket, don't worry, it's it's still good. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's one on there that raised some eyebrows and because it's got small stainless balls in it and they use 440C like we do, but they use smaller balls. And I believe, and we tested it several times to make sure we got the same data, but I believe it fell off the chart fast because we are overloading it too far. 440C is 20, 25% softer than chromium steel, which most balls and races are made out of. And, you know, when we're riding it under normal conditions on our bikes, we're never straining it to the point that we're doing it on this machine. But again, it gets back to, we'd be waiting around forever to test all these bearings. So we, you know, there's, there's always compromises even in testing. I think that bearing does well. I know it does better in the field, but in our test. Yeah, I, I've had, I've had one of those on a bike that has been used and abused for over 10 years, you know, sits outside most days and whenever it rains or whatever. Yeah. It's, and it's still running fine. Yeah. So, you know, we we do and we do talk about that in the test report that um we we give a a caveat there's you know another the SRAM BV actually does quite well for its cost i mean you know it's it's not an expensive bottom bracket and it works you know pretty well for its cost and so forth and so you know you have to like XD15 our top bearings those are and it's a pretty expensive alternative but what's nice about it is it's a no service never have to service it's a full stainless as well and it will not rust or corrode if you're in wet environments it's an unusual ceramic hybrid in that we don't use chromium steel we use this nitrogen steel and that's the reason we get these kind of results and it does obviously really well under this high loading circumstance but I kind of knew that when we made it because those bearings are used in steel mills with no lubrication. It's so hot where they get used, the, you know, that's one of its applications. There's never any, the lubricant would get burned out of the, the bearings all the time because it's, it's used for rollers for, you know, hot rolling steel. So it burns the grease out if you put it in there. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the materials a little bit and then we'll come back to the chart because you mentioned the, the one that has the 440C stainless, both for the ball and the race material, which you said is a softer steel. And that one's, you know, in the grand scheme of things on this chart, ranked lower than many, not at the bottom, but, um, your Enduro Max hit, which is, pretty well ranked has the same 440c stainless for the ball and the race the only difference between them is that at least on this chart is the size of the ball itself you know that you go from a yours has a 4.76 millimeter ball down to a 
3.175. So, you know, roughly a 1.6 millimeter difference in size. Why is that so important? Like, why did that make such a big difference? So it's a small difference in diameter, but it's a big, a big change in mass because you have to multiply by pi and so forth to get the uh, volume of the bearing. So it actually increases in volume, I think, between those two about four times. So you have a much better, bigger contact patch of the stainless steel. So again, let's get back to we're overloading these bearings, and that's why your bottom bracket has lasted so long in stainless steel with the, the smaller size balls. But when you get into much higher loads and uh, abuse, it will the contact patch and uh, the contact area of the balls onto the race, given the same exact material, makes a big difference because it supports the bearing better and the ball is rolling at a slower rate. Um, it's quite a, a big, uh, I can't remember ex- the exact difference, but when you go up in diameter, it's rolling at a smaller rate around the bearing than smaller balls. So you're basically on a ball bearing as you roll balls around the race, you're cold working it constantly. That's what you're doing. It's like if you went to an auto body shop and you were cold working a body panel that's what you're doing with a bearing. That's why they eventually wear out. You're constantly going towards weakening the metal. So if you have a much larger area that you're pushing it over, it lasts longer. It's kind of a basic fact. So the the larger ball is what helps us there. Right on. So you have a couple of different materials here, three. You have the XD15, which is your proprietary material, the 440C stainless, which is in two of them. And then most of them have a chromium steel race, and then a few between those, half of them are ceramic bearings, and then half of them are chromium steel bearings. So what's where does chromium steel sit in between or in relation to the XC15 and the 440C? So we use chromium steel mostly in our bearings, like everybody else does, because it's a really good material and it's relatively inexpensive. So all of the basic bearings, we call them ABEC 3, ABEC 5, people call them their own things. They're chromium steel. And what is chromium steel? It's a, It's got a lot of chrome in it, as it says. It's got a lot of carbon in it. Carbon is what makes it really hard and strong. However, it's also what contributes to it failing because that's how rust can start with a carbon steel bearing. And 95% of bearing failures start with corrosion. Even though you don't see it, It that's how that's how it starts. And so chromium steel is great as long as you keep grease in it and you have to service them. So chromium steel ceramic bearing, for instance, you have to service it maybe at least once a year, at least, to make sure you have grease in it and it's clean. Because if you don't, it's going to last about a week if it runs out of grease, maybe less. Because, And that's you know a lot of frustration with ceramic bearings. Hey, these things are supposed to last forever. Well, They'll last for a long time as long as they're not full of water, which will rust them out immediately, and you have grease in them. So they can rust and wear out. That's the main uh, nemesis of a chromium steel ceramic bearing. With XD15, it's also a ceramic ball, and you have to, that's kind of a baseline. You have to start with really good quality ceramic balls, but then the the races on XD15, it's a nitrogen stainless, 
it's a, it's a different animal in that it won't rust, it won't corrode, but different from 440C, it also won't gall or pit, like, uh, I'll get into that later, but you roll the bearing over it and it actually smooths the bearing over time. And that's why you see it slightly tilting up on that graph is lower wattage. It actually improves over time. That's what we were seeing in our wattage machine. And when we said, hey, we should put a wattage meter on here and and see what's actually going on with this thing, because it's actually the motor that was driving the bearing on the test machine was pulling less wattage. And that's when we decided to do this test. Yeah, and you know, our stuff did do well, but it's there's not much testing or actual data that bearing companies do. Frankly, it's a lot of theoretical. So I would say, hey, if you got a better idea on this test, let's let's hear it and let's do it. I'm all ears to try and figure it out. Hey, real quick, I wanted to let you know this bike rumor podcast is brought to you by the Pros Closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride. From top brands to niche names, TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over $200. And now back to our episode. This Bike Rumor podcast was brought to you by The Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, The Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel with available financing and competitive pricing. TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over $200. i am glad you explained why yours got a little bit better because of the smoothing of the bearings, but like wooden smoothing of anything, I, I think of it as like sanding it, right? Like you're you're polishing in some way. So wouldn't that be like removing material and eventually you're in, the bearings are getting just gradually smaller and smaller and it introduces a little bit of play? Well, what's actually, so the balls are not getting smaller. They're the ceramic balls are just, it's like a rock. It's, it's not going to change the diameter, the races, but you're right. The races are wearing in a little bit there. And, uh, the thing about XD, so if this happened at a accelerated rate, you would have a loose bearing over time and the thing would be jiggly and you'd want to throw it away. But, uh, XD 15, it, it changes on a, uh, micro level but not enough to change the internal clearance where you would throw the bearing away. So let's talk numbers there. The internal clearance of a XD15 is about 0.007 millimeters. That's the internal play between the ball and the race. When it's completely worked in, it's about 0.012 millimeters. So it's changed about twice. That's 0.007 millimeters. It's really hard to to detect that in your wheel or in your bottom bracket. So it has worn in a, a little bit. You're right. The races has been polished and some material has been evened out, I would call it. Because when you grind a bearing, you can't see it, but there's little high points and low points. You know, if you look under the microscope, no matter how mirror finish it looks like to your naked eye, 
when you look under the microscope, it looks like mountains. You know, it looks like a profile of the Giro or something because you got little mountains. But then as the ball rolls over it, it's going to roll that stuff out. And that happens on all bearings. It's just that what happens on other bearings, it starts to roll in. You'll notice in the beginning of the graph, they start to get smoother at the beginning. They all start to get better a little bit, but then it changes and they start going downhill. And uh, what happens is they start to, so the ball starts rolling over the races and smooths out those, those rough points. The grease dissipates and gets under the seals. There's less friction from the seals once the grease gets under the, the sealing lip. That changes by a factor of 10, by the way, in friction, which a lot of people talk about seal friction. And it's true that most of the friction we feel from bearings is from the seals. And if no grease gets under the seal, there's quite a bit of drag. That's also why we put more grease in our bearings so that enough grease dissipates to get under the seal because it changes it by a large factor. Like how many watts? What are we talking in numbers? That's a really small number. It's probably, uh, boy... I haven't figured it out. I do have the numbers on it. It changes by a factor of 10 in the coefficient of friction, but it's like probably less than a tenth of a watt. Okay. Which is funny. I would have actually guessed more because like I just put a new wheel set on my bike and, you know, different wheels are different, but there are some that when you first put them on and you spin it, it's like you can tell it's it's got to be seal drag, right? Yeah. Because that's the only thing it could be. It, it, uh, seal drag just has a very distinct feel when you're just like slowly rolling a wheel, right? And it seems like, you know, if I give the wheel a good spin in the sand, it slows down much faster than it should because I know it's it's a high qual- quality brand of hubs yeah. with, you know, high quality bearings inside. So it's not an issue with the hub itself, but like how long does it take typically, you know, if you guys have tested this or seen it for the either that grease to kind of work its way in there or just for the seals to wear down enough to where they're not quite so snug and dragging. So for the grease to dissipate and get under the seals, it's basically one ride. So let's say two or three hours. It's completely uh, mixed and gone to an equilibrium of uh, mix through the bearing. But for the seals to wear in, that can take, uh, that's like a year of good riding to, to, oh, wow. to wear in a seal. So that takes a while. At that point, are they are they compromised? Like as, as when you don't feel the seal drag anymore, whether or not you can physically feel it. When let's rephrase that: when the seal drag isn't there anymore, does that mean it's not doing a very good job of sealing? Probably, yeah, that's probably true because it depends on the seal design. So there's most seals are called you hear it's two RS, right? That just means two rubber seals. It's generic for any bearing that's got a seal on it. Yeah, it's very scientific. Like one on one side, one on the other? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, But there's a lot of different designs of seals. Two RS usually means it's got a rubber seal and it's one sealing lip that seals against the inner ring of the bearing. And um, ours, we, we cut a groove into the inner ring and then we use two lips on the seal. And we spend a lot of time on seal design because the groove helps retain the grease at the seal. So to your question about when a seal wears out, if it's a, a, just a single lip seal running on the groove and then it wears out, now the dirt can come in, the grease can come out and you get contamination. But if you have a groove seal, you kind of hold that off longer because you have one lip that's holding the grease inside the bearing, the other lip's keeping the uh, dirt out. And 
in the groove, in the bottom of the trough, you have some grease that becomes a barrier against water. And it not only keeps the seals lubed, but it, it keeps the water from coming. It's a hydrodynamic seal. It's what they call it. There's one other interesting little thing here that I, on the chart is, so you have two versions of your Enduro XD15, the basic one, I guess, which is for OEM only, and then the Angular Contact one, which you can buy aftermarket. And there's one other bottom bracket on here that's Angular Contact. And for people who have no idea, and probably to refresh my own memory, you know, like what's the key difference between a standard you know, cartridge bearing and the Angular Contact one? And then why, how does that come into play in terms of durability and everything else? So it's a good question because a lot of people ask it too. Uh, so uh, most bearings that are in bottom brackets are radial bearings. And radial bearings are meant just that the load is supposed to come from the top straight down. That's where they they hold or they uh, support the load with the greatest efficiency. And um, there's always play in radial bearings. So that gets back to the balls are only supporting the weight at the bottom of the of the rotation. At the top, there's play, and the, the balls that are going around the top are almost floating as they come around. They're unloaded, and then they get loaded again. And about So at any given time, 35% of the balls are supporting all the load. In an angular contact bearing, the bearing is designed to have two bearings opposite, side-loaded, pre-loaded, so that all the balls are always in contact and supporting the low. There's an angle of that. It's usually 15 degrees. It can be 25 degrees. In headsets, we have 45 degree angular contact bearings. So that's where everybody would be familiar with angular contact bearings all day. They're, all, they're in every headset. So they're directional. You have to load them in one direction and you always need two opposing them each other and you preload them with your top cap. So in a bottom bracket, we actually preload the bearings all the time, right? But usually we're using radial bearings. So that's pushing the ball over to one side. It's kind of not correct because you're pushing the ball out of its most efficient ball path over to the side. So what you can do with radial bearings is make them deeper groove with bigger balls to support that side loading better. Or you can make them angular contact and build up that side race where the ball's going to be and design it internally, the architecture, so that it you're loading the balls in the correct direction and putting them on the right part of the race. I mean, from a layman's perspective, angular contact seems like a better solution. So why does almost nobody do this? It's two things. Cost. Uh, angular contact bearings cost about two, two, three times as much to make. And you have to, from a production standpoint, you have to make sure you put them in the right way. All, that doesn't seem like a big thing, but it, at factory level, sometimes <laughs> it becomes a problem. Yeah. And then teaching people how to repair them. And it became, I'll tell you when it became a thing, like cup and cone bearings, we had them forever on hubs, on bicycles. Those were all angular contact. And now we have radio. And Shimano still does, I yeah, believe, right? Yeah. And and I feel like that's what's on most of the cheap bikes because I've had to like pull some friends' kids' bikes apart or just, you know, their wheels were so crunchy and you pull it apart and the bearings just spill out and you're like, ah, oh, crap. And you're putting them back in and greasing it. But it is, it's, it's, it looks to me like a cup and cone, which is essentially angular contact just without any sort of cartridge to hold it all together. And, you know, for a hub, 
it's a good design, frankly. But so there's angular con- contact cartridge bearings, which we offer as well. But sometimes it's hard to explain to people that you have to adjust the cones on either end. You know, you and you, you're obviously familiar with it, so you know how to adjust the cone, and then you have to adjust it before you put it into your bike and you know crank down on your through axle or your quick release, which squeezes it again and can make it tight. So on real lightweight hubs, it can change the uh, the preload once you put it in the bike. Yeah, I noticed like I've spent too many hours over the years fiddling with the Chris King hub that I have, which uses that. They've got the little preload adjuster, as do other brands, but I just happen to have a King one. Yeah, and it's like you get it to where you think you feel perfectly good in your hands and you put it in the bike and you it, that one is still on a QR bike. And uh you close it and then you're like, ah, oh, it's so tight. And you'll like fiddle with it thinking it's perfect. And it's, it, it is, it's, there's a skill to getting it just right. But for a bottom bracket situation, right? Is it just a matter of like taking that preload ring that's usually on the non-drive side, opening it all the way out, cranking your crank set into place, you know, because mm-hmm. I think with most modern designs, you know, you tighten it as basically as tight as you can. And it just, it butts up against a stopping point on the spindle. And then you use the preload ring on the non-drive crank arm to take up any lateral play. But is that enough to sort of adjust a angular contact bottom bracket? Or how does, like, how do you adjust that for a bottom bracket? Well, we we started a few years ago with 45 degree angular contact bottom bracket bearings. And you need a lot of preload for those. Uh, When I say a lot, like, you know, 15 to 20 pounds of preload. That's quite a bit, actually. For people who use like a torque wrench, like what is that in um, meters? It might be a more familiar Five number. newtons, I guess. It's quite a bit. Uh, you know, now we're talking, yeah, sorry, my newton pound conversion <laughs> head factor. I don't, <laughs> don't quote me on that one, but it's, let, let's say like a, like a uh, you know, now angular contact bearings when you do that preload adjuster by hand it's about seven pounds uh it's about half of that you don't need a lot you know it's those little plastic or even the metal ones as tight as you can get it you're not talking a lot about a lot of it's pretty light it's just enough to push the bearings together to get the balls into the right place so it's it's not a huge number if you have it over cranked it's not going to turn so the other way we deal with angular contact or not having angular contact bearings, if you will, is max hit those bearings that also were on the test chart with the large balls. Those are radial, but they have such deep grooves. You can preload those things any way you want, as much as you want, and they'll still spin. The reason being is they have such deep groove. They have deep grooves both sides, and then the balls are so large. Again, it gets back to the larger balls are really difficult to pinch. When you've over-tightened them and they don't tight, they don't roll anymore, it's because you're pinching the balls and they might be rolling or they might be skidding now. And if they're skidding, they're going to wear out the race. And if you have ceramic balls and they're skidding, the ceramic ball is like a carbide cutter. It can just cut the chromium steel race. So that's when they will wear out really quickly. <laughs> so... That kind of gets back to the whole thing of angular contact. It does work well, but now we get into like adjustment and setting it up. And it's sometimes it's tricky for mechanics or the home mechanic or us to anybody to get the proper adjustment. Bottom bracket's a little easier because we're not crushing it like you were referring to with the with the wheel. 
after you've done your preload on a wheel, then you're crushing it in the with the um the QR or the through axle. So that changes the adjustment again. On a bottom bracket, it's you set it and then that's it. So it's a little easier to deal with on a bottom bracket in that way. And you're only talking two bearings. In a rear hub, you know, you got four, there's more going on with your angular contact adjustment on a hub. It gets a little more complicated. So for non-angular contacts, so most bottom brackets out there, then is the ideal to simply have your cranks in there and with the with whatever spacers you need in the preload adjuster set so that there's essentially the tiny, most minute amount of lateral play. So much that you really don't ever feel it, but you, you just have that little bit of space to where it's not pinching the bolts, but also not sliding back and forth. Exactly. That's the uh, an undetectable amount of play, which there is in all radial bearings. You don't really feel it because we're talking really small numbers. But if there isn't play a little bit, you know, the we in a perfect world, a ball bearing inside would be exact. And as the ball rolls around the race, it's always the exact same clearance around it. But they're not. You know, it's. The balls we can make really round. Most modern balls are grade 10, which is 10 millionths out of round. It's so round. It's way rounder than the race is true, if you will. So the race, there's going to be places where it gets tight and then a little looser as it goes around because you got two races that were made and maybe going down a little rabbit hole here. But uh, as you yeah, please do. As, as the balls roll around, there's going to be tight places and loose places. It's just, uh, it, it, it just can't be helped. It's not going to be perfect going all the way around. How is that though? Because I would imagine they're machined. They're not forged or stamped, right? right. And so if you have something spinning there to machine it, how would it make some areas areas narrower or less round than others? Well, we're talking really small numbers here, right? They're actually better than machined. They're super ground. So when ball bearings get, they're spinning. And instead of a uh, point, you know, to, like on a lathe, a, a cutter turning it, there's a little micro grinder going back and forth on the ball groove, grinding the ball groove while it's turning. And uh, it's way more accurate than machining even. Ball bearings are all ground, so they're, they're much higher tolerance than the, than the aluminum machined parts they're fitting into. So here's another thing, though. Now you take that super precise bearing and you press it into a hub that is not as precise as, you know, into a hub bore, into an aluminum hub bore, and it's not as precise as the bearing. The bearings are really thin that we use on bicycles, really lightweight, because we're always chasing weight. And that actually slightly deforms the ring when you press it in. So there's a few things happening that as you assemble the whole hub, you, you have to count up your out-of-tolerance parts. And on a micro level, it's not perfect. It might feel perfect in your hand, but and that's what we're looking for. But there is going to be these points when the ball's turning around that it's going to be tighter or looser. It's just, you know, in general, you won't feel that. When you do feel it, it's way out. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. Is, um, so is that like one of the benefits then of like a cup and cone where the, the inner race is, or I guess one of the races is just machined straight into the hub shell. And so that's like eliminating one little piece of that tolerance stack. Well, I, I would say the tolerance is just uh, you can make a cup and cone set up with, like you, you mentioned, it's on kids' bikes. 
you can make it with not lousier tolerance, like worse tolerances or uh, less tight tolerances and still come up with something that's acceptable and works. And it works really well. So in, in production. Yeah, well, Shimano has been doing it successfully for a long time and they don't seem to ever want to budge from it. So Yeah, no, I've heard they're a pretty good engineering company. So I, I would. <laughs> so I hear. Yeah. <laughs> take my hat off to that. Awesome. Well, that's uh, that's all my questions. Um, I, I hope people will check out the chart and the numbers on this because it really is pretty interesting. And I, I'm glad that you could put it in perspective. And I really appreciate, you know, I feel like I'm sort of diminishing the dramatic nature of your chart by asking you to sort of share what those numbers mean. But I appreciate that you're willing to do that and, you know, show that, you know, your competitors are also pretty good products. Is there anything else you'd want to add about bottom brackets that, you know, what do you get asked a lot that I'm not asking? Well, no, I, I think to your, just getting back to that point you made just there is um, the chart ends up being more dramatic, you know, but it's really, if you look at the numbers, that's what I'm saying. There's not huge differences we're talking about here. And we're trying to tell, I guess, well, this is the real story that we found in real testing. You know, it, it did come out. I mean, we probably wouldn't have published it if it hadn't come out in our advantage. But we, I spent a lot <laughs> of time trying to fix these problems. And to your second question, most of the problems and questions I get asked about bottom brackets is about longevity, not about like, I mean, people are always interested in saving energy, of course, right? I want to like ride this bike for a year, two years, three years, and not have to tear it apart and, you know, service my bearings. And, you know, I mean, it's a lot of work or hubs, for instance, but so the questions we get asked is, how can I get something that is going to last? It won't rust up. It won't, uh, fail if I'm out on the trail. You know, I had a call last week from a guy who I won't say what brand he was using, but he bought something and fell apart on the trail. And he was just, I thought he had one of our products and he was yelling and and then it turned out he had bought something <laughs> else. And he goes, I just want something that'll work, you know? And uh, so, you know, that's kind of, people don't think about bearings until there's a problem usually. So it's a problem solver. We're kind of, trying to problem solve here all the time and make it better. And most of the questions are about longevity and corrosion. Actually, I'm surprised you don't get more questions about creaking because I I feel like now if I ended this podcast about bottom bracket bearings without talking about creaking and noises, there'd probably be some angry comments. I look at like press fit, which is super popular for a lot of reasons, right? I think press fit, this is my take, correct me if I'm wrong. Press fit came about because It was quicker and easier to manufacture, quicker and easy for the assembly plants to install bearings and slap everything together. So it saved time and money in that regard. Yes. Obviously, there's some tolerance issues because a lot of people complain about creaky bottom brackets. But I think, you know, the the obvious solution to me is we'll get something like the thread together ones that you guys make where you're threading this bottom bracket together and it's becoming a, a single piece as opposed to two distinct bearings on either side. But not all frames can accommodate those Mm -hmm. for various reasons. You know, maybe there's like cable routing inside that prevents it or just something else. What can people do to sort of silence creaky bottom bracket bearings? Or is there a way to sort of, you know, if your frame is, for whatever reason, a little out of tolerance or whatever other grits in there, something, right? Like, what are some solutions you found or or some problems that people may have that they haven't checked? Well, the... uh best solution is definitely a torque type bottom bracket, a thread together solution. If you can do that, if you can't 
do that. The other problem common is if the bearings aren't located close to the crank arms, you have adapters, too many more parts add to creaking and so forth. You got to have a bottom bracket that places the, the bearings out at the crank arms. And every one of our thread together solutions puts the bearings as far out as possible. So you're not using many spacers to get out to the end there. When you're cantilevering the crank out off of the bearings that are maybe inside the bottom bracket shell and the spindles sticking way out on one side, it's going to creak eventually, probably, especially with aluminum parts that you're piling up and you can grease those parts, but then they start chafing against each other from flex and you start getting noises. And, you know, you're always trying to track those noises down. So there's two hallmarks. You want to have the bearings as close to the crank arms as possible. You also want press-in cups, if you have press-in cups, to try and go to a threaded solution. Like you say, you can't do it in every circumstance. Sometimes you have to, we have a double row solution for, you know, BB-86 when you want to put a 30 millimeter crank in or a 29. And uh, those work really well. They're really wide. So the purchase area of of those bearings that we make have a really wide solution. So that, again, surface area so that uh, it's got a good, uh, solid, air, large area to make contact with so it doesn't creak. But, um, you know, back to the beginning, we don't get as many questions anymore about creaking bottom brackets because most of the manufacturers are going back to threaded solutions <laughs> like BSA and T47. And to your point, you know, they, the factories started doing it because the workers were cross-threading bottom brackets into carbon bikes. And then the the stakes got a lot higher when you got to throw a carbon bike away because you just cross-threaded it with a pneumatic tool at the factory, you know, brr, you know, forcing it in there. So the press fit solved that, but uh, it created a whole nother list of problems that we're familiar with now. <laughs> right on. Well, I appreciate your time and sharing all your knowledge on bearings again. It's, I always love these deep dive conversations. I love talking about it. It's good talking with you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yep. Well, I hope everyone uh, head to bikerumor.com and just click the little link for podcasts and you'll find a link to this episode with the charts and graphs and numbers. And it's it's pretty interesting. But I, I think hopefully you'll be relieved to know that all the ones listed there are also really, really good, despite what the graph looks like. That's true. <laughs> thanks a lot, Tyler. Yep. Thank you, Matt. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.